0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Do families really work? I do marriage and family counseling and though there are there is much, there are many similarities between the two. They are distinctly different. Uh, there's always the pragmatic considerations of numbers. <laughs> and with that, not only multiple relations or relationships as with familial or family counseling, but all of those as with microcosm in mind or component part, at least the idea of, of a component part sort of model, components parts of the family. None more important than marriage. We're looking at pretty much the same dynamics. We're just looking at it on a microcosm or a smaller scale when we talk about marriage and marital relations in context of family. That said, I also believe you could argue, however, that the family is not going to be any better than the central elemental part, foundational, in a foundational way, part of whatever you call it. You may not want to call it marriage, although that's traditionally what we've called it in the industry, marital, relationship, significant other, counseling, Because if that's not getting along, then they're not getting along. If that's not functional, working, and they're not getting along, then the rest of the family is probably not going to get along. If that truly is then foundational to the family. And in a like manner, I think you could extrapolate or generalize that to our culture, whether it is regional, national, geographical, or world. Uh, And our ability as a society to function in healthy, adaptive ways. And truly then, I guess the work that I do with marriage and family counseling is probably as important as anybody might do anything with, on a world scale geographical scale, continental scale, national scale, regional scale, city, municipality scale, because it's all the same. (laughs) If you can't do the core, and even so, marriage as component, subcomponent, that model to the larger ecosystem or familial systems, systemic therapies, what we call it, or systems theory, uh, what we get to is even within the individual, there's a certain aspect of relationship with yourself that's predicate upon what we're going to talk about today. And what is that? We're talking about social life and cooperation. And the article from Psychology Today of the March and April 2023 publication is, does kindness trump ability? Our ancestors valued warmth over competence. Is it still in our best interest to do so? By Nome Spanser, PhD. When sizing someone up, what do you look for? What features of someone's presence factor most heavily in your judgment of them? A large body of research points to two prominent dimensions we use to make judgments of other individuals and groups. The first is warmth, encompassing appraisals of a person's intent and disposition, their trustworthiness and sociability. The second is competence, our perception of another's abilities, agency, and capability for carrying out their intents. You can see why these two traits are critical to appraise early. Our ancestors benefited greatly from the ability to tell friend from foe and the ability to assess whether said friends and foes were competent or inept. Today, research finds that our appraisals of warmth and competence guide our judgments of groups and individuals in socially consequential ways, helping determine who we sympathize with and who we disdain, who we vote for and who we promote, who we admire and who we envy. Research finds that of the two, we generally prioritize warmth over competence. In other words, when evaluating potential relationships, we tend to appraise a warm and incompetent person more positively than a cold and competent one. Why we we do so hasn't been entirely understood, but a recently proposed theory may shed some light. Why warmth takes the lead? Traditionally, scholars have argued that warmth is weighted more heavily because it is more consequential to one's welfare. Whether someone intends to help or harm you, the argument goes, is inherently more relevant to your survival than their ability to do either. This explanation, however, falters in a few ways. For one, it assumes that someone's intent shapes the outcome of their actions far more than their ability does. In practice, the result of someone's behavior is the combined product of their intentions and their capabilities. Even if your neighbor has kindly agreed to give you half of whatever he grows in his garden, his horticultural skills will be a deciding factor in how much produce you actually receive. Evolutionary psychologists Adar Eisenbrook and Max Krasnow offer a new theory in a paper published last year in Perspectives on Psychological Science. They posit that among ancestral humans, warmth was valued more highly than competence, not because it was inherently more important for survival, but because warmth provided more predictive than competence for the future of a relationship. It's not that warmth has superior value, but that it can be a relatively rare trait. In choosing whom to collaborate with, the authors argue, our ancestors faced greater variance in potential partners' warmth than in their competence. The variability in warmth was a byproduct of our complex social organization. Unlike many other animals, we tended to live in groups with multiple men, multiple women, and a mix of kin and non-kin, creating abundant opportunities for both alliances and rivalries and collaboration as well as conflict. While the range of competence runs only from high to low, the range of warmth runs all the way from high positive to high negative. A bad choice on warmth, in example, inadvertently choosing a malicious partner, could have substantially worse outcomes than a good choice. While a bad choice on competence, where differences between candidates were not so wide, was likely to be less consequential. Once in a cooperative relationship, however, a partner's competence might vary widely depending on the domain. This is in part because our ancestors tended to have domain-specific skills. Some were talented hunters but struggled to make tools. Others excelled at child care but were less skilled at gathering food. And much of early human success or lack thereof was determined by a combination of ability, luck, and other factors outside their control. Even the most proficient forager might struggle to find food during a drought. Warmth, on the other hand, tends towards stability over time within a given relationship. Someone who helps you in situation A is likely to help you in situation B. Competence in area A, however, does not predict competence in area B. Does this still apply today? This theory then suggests that our tendency to privilege warmth over competence was hardwired by evolution in an environment much different from our own. Yet to be answered by research, however, is whether the same calculus still makes sense today. In the modern world, vastly more complex than the one in which our ancestors lived, Differences in competence may be just as large and consequential as differences in warmth within a population of potential partners and perhaps an enduring and generalizable and perhaps as enduring and generalizable across domains within a relationship. Take educational attainment, differences in health, wealth and longevity, are vast when comparing the uneducated to their highly educated peers. The value of education tends to generalize across life domains and the gap doesn't close over time. In today's world, picking a highly educated partner might ultimately prove more advantageous than picking a highly sympathetic one. And our world becomes increasingly, and as our world becomes increasingly technologically sophisticated, the gap between the digital haves and have-nots, those who grow up digitally savvy compared to those who don't, widens. Like education, digital divide can have compounding effects across time and life domains. Someone who lacks technological know-how may struggle to keep up in school, find the job, maintain social connections, and advance economically in an increasingly online world. A propensity to privilege warmth, then, may prove problematic under modern conditions. And while research is still underway, it's perhaps worth asking whether it's time to recalibrate our assessment. Again, Psychology Today, March-April 2023, Social Life Cooperation, article entitled, Does Kindness Trump Ability?, Our ancestors valued warmth over competence. Is it still in our best interest to do so by Noam Spanser, PhD? And Noam is a professor of psychology at the Audubon University and practicing clinical psychologist in Columbus, Ohio. I think that is a very difficult question. Whether or not competency is more important adaptively, evolutionarily, adaptively over warmth. And though the article tends to make the distinction between the two, you can have somebody who is warm as well as confident. And maybe there is a bit of a reference to that at the beginning, but I think the article's intention was to go in a different direction than this: If you don't get along, though, what is it? And what is it to get along in terms of evolution and adaptability? And perchance the article does directly address that, maybe indirectly, more than directly, than it does directly, by capturing it as warmth. But I think there's a bit of a distinction or difference. I can be warm and friendly, but be totally incompetent. Or I can be warm and friendly and competent. Or I can be competent and totally unfriendly and lacking warmth. Which of those three scenarios or combinations are going to most likely then give me what I believe, as within social context, is ultimately the greatest of human advantages on an evolutionary level and that is numbers. Not just transactionally numbers, but even if you just measured it transactionally, numbers are important. Mass, volume, but transactionally if you don't have warmth and caring and friendly you're going to have to come up with and sustain some code, codify, some code of ethics, so that we end up then in transactional terms, though we may lack warmth or in that even outward expression, believing with some integrity that it would be an inward value or attribute in in an individual we'd have to at least make it such that we don't end up harming one another. I suppose you could pretend like you're a nice person, <laughs> you're friendly, and that's really what sociopathy is to the extreme. But if you do it with integrity, and that's why I mentioned individual <laughs> at the beginning of the podcast, uh, it, individual family, cultural, the regional, national, geographical, world kind of way of looking at it, generalizing it, it's much easier if you foster that, much easier if you lead with that, because even in that numbers sort of way, you don't end up harming one another or hurting one another. You don't exploit sociopathically without conscience capable even so of murder, that's the ultimate of sociopaths, that they have no empathy at all, that they are lacking totally in perspective taking except to the end of exploitation, what they can get out of it. But for the sake of marriage and family, (laughs) therapy and counseling, that's an important appraisal. And in that sense, if it's lined up, with a pro-social nature. Something that inherently is in us. Not only toward numbers. Which again is advantageous. But numbers alone. If it's only transactional. If we can't find then something innately. More, most elegantly. Then creating the most positive of motives. You're going to have to do a lot of rules, codification, regulation, and then (laughs) judging that, you'll have to have a lot of courts and you'll have to have a lot of, and, and therapists sometimes, psychological counselors are put in that position of judgment. I can assure you, I don't like that. It's a very arduous and difficult job. It's very difficult to sort all that out. Uh, We have all kinds of different levels of court because of probably this very thing we're speaking of. Uh, Maybe it's impossible. Maybe humans aren't innately pro-social. Maybe we have to be taught to be pro-social. It's a whole different article or a whole different podcast. Different direction to take a podcast, but not this one. But assuming then that it is best to identify anything, I prefer the warmth. I prefer the friendliness. If I have to codify a bit and describe it in some tangible, pragmatic, step-by-step, procedural, literal, sort of process-oriented way, I'll do that. You have to practice empathy. This is what practical definition, operational Literal definition this is what empathy is, then you have to practice perspective taking. But if a person's lost their prosocial nature or possibly in defense, they've been harmed so much by dysfunctional aspects of the relationship, perchance, possibly, people are immature. That would be something of, I guess, significance to consider. Maybe that's why we should try to do everything we can to lead with warmth, to facilitate warmth, again, to preempt and prevent people from becoming harmed so they don't become callous and bitter, traumatized with abuse to such an extent they lose the pro-social nature if you're inclined to believe that humans are innately, inherently of some good. But because the time you get to that place of sociopathy and should you then make the determination that it warrants a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder which is really sociopathic or psychopathic sort of measure degree then it's too late most would say you can't correct that the only thing that's from heart inside out integrity sort of dimension Too much is lost, too much has been traumatized, too much has come along to steal that, to to cause in that defensive sort of way disassociation. As a defense, losing the compassion element, all of that is too far. You just have to codify it or come up with rules and then are left to judging it. (laughs) That's generally penal system, that's generally incarceration when they can't be judged in a least or lesser restrictive sort of manner or held accountable or managed. Costs a lot of resource to do that. And in the end, you just it's a sign up for the rest of their life. And if we don't recognize individual to more global Sort of generalization, take that in consideration. It's a big endeavor to take on if the whole world is filled full of these people and somebody's got to be a Supreme Court or somebody has to legislate from some great position of power that we give them to tell us what to do so that we don't end up killing one another or harming one another. It's psychotherapy. Again, psychological counseling works the same way. It won't work if we can't generalize that to the home. If it's just left to coming to see someone such as myself, you can't do that at home. And if we can't attach that to an innate concept, conceptualization, attribute such as warmth and friendliness. Because outside of that and not only numbers, but getting along to the extended degree that we don't harm one another. All the other stuff of competency can be measured in diversity, in terms of diversity in individuals. If you can't get that from this person, then somebody else is likely to do it or be able to do it. Uh, some are... again. <laughs> aptitude. More intrinsically inclined, as the article points out. Some go to school, have more education, as the article points out. Some are maybe more technologically inclined and advanced. But we can sort out the rest of it if we can get along. I think one of the greatest (laughs) problems, difficulties with the current debate over capitalism versus socialism in those most extreme and then generic sort of persuasions, at least uh, definitions, uh, is that both probably represent singularly error. But when you put the two together and they work together, as long as we can get along, that's probably the ideal. I'm not saying that capitalism rewards competency, any more than socialism only rewards friendliness but if you can't hang out with the other side and have healthy dialogue and agree to some extent on either innate social sort of dimension pro-social dimension in humans and if it's not there for whatever reason Bad upbringing, abuse and trauma during childhood, poverty, hunger, pestilence, (laughs) man-made, more natural sort of disasters. If you can't then in some ways come up with at least an ideal and then teach that in code, ethics sort of manner, you're probably not going to ever get a chance to see how each complement the other. That's why I believe not only is it difficulty in a societal, maybe world, not only national, regional, continental, but global sort of way, but if we did this from the ground up, if we did this by appreciating the first and foremost thing is warmth and friendship. Then you can explore these other things, but you're not allowed to explore these other things if you don't demonstrate a pro-social attitude. We shouldn't let you do it. Same thing with the marital. That's why I go to empathy and perspective taking. That's why I do an assessment or appraisal of warmth. I think that's why it's in us adaptively. Evolutionarily advantageous, why we're wired that way. I don't know that I disagree with the conclusions or at least the general direction the article takes. I don't know that the times are so different that that base needs to be overridden or modified. Uh, As the article points out, there was a time when it was less complex and Maybe less factors I don't know that factors matter or complexity matters as long as foundation is solid. That's why with marriage and family counseling, I always look at the individual, the individual in context of the primary, foundational relationship, whether you call it marriage or not, that partnership. Because if that's not there, and then socialization, teaching about that. Encouragement at an early enough age, mitigating the risk for harm and trauma in the family system, protecting and preserving the family system, even if it's extended family, even if it's non-traditional family, even if it's not in such a binary sort of way, whatever you want to call it, preserve that and emphasize that social dimension And we can sort the rest of it out. I do that, again, even in family context. I begin with at least appraisal of that primary relationship and then see how all the other relationships have come into conformity or alignment with it for the sake of preserving the system. You can't hang out. It's systems theory. You're not going to preserve the system if you're in such a state of disagreement or conflict there's such then the defensiveness that you can't get along. The system's going to fall apart. <laughs> the marriage is going to fall apart. The family's going to fall apart. The culture, the community, the municipality, the city is going to fall apart. People are going to become more sociopathic. We're not emphasizing that right a priority, and most important, significant of attributes, human attributes, to care for one another, pro-social, care for one another. We've let that become a secondary thought, if a thought at all, and it all starts to fall apart. And it's very difficult to put it back together, just as much as I said earlier, when it comes to then prognosis and it comes to individuals who have already gotten to the point of receiving that diagnosis of either narcissism, borderline, antisocial personalities, it's all about rules at that point, or mostly. Very difficult to change that as core, as virtue character, as personality. But why would you then If we see the evidences of that, if we have a chance to go to therapy, if we have a chance to sit down with a psychological counselor, if we have a chance to kind of explore that, if we have a chance to not kill each other off, whether it's in physical or or psychological dimensions out of hatred and anger and malice, judgment, harsh criticisms alienation, ostracization, ostracization uh, any of those things, why would we not hit the pause and stop for a minute and look at this and say, that's what we need. And I do think that's what we're getting to. Mind health, all the emphasis that we're putting upon mental health, we're not there yet, but we're realizing This may be the only way out. I don't think that mental health is the only salvation for society. But I do think, though, for individuals who can't align under a particular religious or a particular faith, which probably in the past was the agent that kept us all together, but if we're going to give up on those institutions, And those beliefs, then we need to affix it to something and there needs to be some agent of change or influence, even if it's not an individual, although all the individuals need to abide by a similar code of conduct and a script, a narrative. Let it be science, let it be research, let it be evidence-based, let it be empiricism in its highest of forms, the scientific methodology but we need that. If we don't have that, then you can't really expect success when it comes to marital, family, extend that, cultural. And political forces are really not the purveyor of that. You need an expert, you need somebody who really understands that. And until they do, then they're going to be just as guilty. Uh, and need to be subject to it as much as anyone else. I don't think you can create a conscience necessarily, but I do think you can augment and build up and support an already existent conscience, and hopefully we've not destroyed our collective not consciousness, although awareness, again, we're at a point where we're realizing we need to do something about this. It's way too transactional. It's way too exploitive it doesn't have those essential elements of warmth and friendliness. It we've neglected those things. But when you get to that point, then hopefully you'll also have an understanding this is probably not going to be resolved politically. It's not going to be resolved in transactional dimensions anymore than that was the cause of it. It's not going to be the solution to it. We need to reclaim out of a collective consciousness I hope, a common human dimension where we can care for one another. So that is really the premise, at least in, I guess, intent and uh, with as much paradigm, even more so than simply science and empiricism. I want to believe we can get along. And I would even be accused of being wrong and still willing to believe it if it means I've got a chance. But if we're not inclined that way, you can point that out, but we're going to eventually be our own demise. Uh, One of the things I tell my counselees when they come see me is, don't harm yourself and then don't harm others. (laughs) At least recognize how you're, in the end, going to do more damage than you are good. And I do believe, ethically speaking, that is the code. That's what we all, in the helping professions that I represent, the psychological, the counseling, that's what we abide by. I'm hoping that you can think about that the next time that you get into a place of either marriage or family or social or political discussion, come at it that way, hoping you can look for that in your friends and neighbors and those individuals that you call your persons, your significant others. And should you have difficulty, I hope you find help. Go seek it out. Psychology Day again offers a resource directory of providers. Look there. It's regional, but even anymore these days, it is not even bound to geography um, across the state borders. It's international. You can find somebody there for sure who has been vetted and uh, at least established as credible and can help you begin, if not complete the journey. You can also come back to Word with Dave Clay and, uh, I do want to facilitate and encourage this kind of thinking, and hopefully you can take it and share it with others and ask them, hey, have you ever heard of that podcast, Word, with Dave Clay? Uh, Of course, it could be a bit self-serving, but I think it really serves the cause more than it does the person, even as I'm trying to do this out of the best of spirits. Should you want to reach out to me, you can call us at 304-523-WORD. You can also email me at thewordhouseatfrontier.com. Be glad to get back with you. Also, would love it once more if you could come back for our next podcast. Until then, wishing you the best in health and mental health. And thanks.